Welcome to the Bethel Community Church Podcast. Bethel Community Church exists to love and lead one another to find and follow Jesus. In today's message, we're going to discuss the return of Jesus and why many times it's confusing. The return of Jesus can bring about all sorts of emotions like anxiety and confusion, fear, and even joy in the mix of all of it. The early church and the disciples taught that the return of Jesus was something that should produce joy in us in anticipation. So today we're going to start the discussion of part one of the return of Jesus. If you'd like more information about Bethel Community Church, you can find us online at www.mybethel.cc. There are so many areas of life that cause division. And I think for me, in my, in my short yet not, sh- not short existence, you know, 45 is kind of, someone said it was halfway, and I'm like, eh, I might be already over the halfway mark myself. You know, I've, I've kind of lived a life that was r- difficult. I'm not, what? Am I 47? How old am I? I don't even know how old I am. That's how old I am, okay? Wow, 46? I think I'm 46. 47, 48. How old are you, Christy? <laughs> this, is, this is not important, okay? Um, my point is, in my life, there has been some things in the church world that has caused lots of division. And the return of Jesus, unfortunately, has been one of the most controversial things. And it, and it doesn't make sense. All it's done is divide the church into different categories. And they put labels. There's labels that are put on them that you didn't come up with or I didn't come up with. But when you're confronted with the labels, you have to pick which one you want to be. So you start looking in Scripture, and you're like, I don't think any of those are in Scripture. Is there a no label? You know, I just think Jesus is coming back. And so as we're looking today, I think we need to understand that this is a divisive issue. There's actually whole denominations and churches set up on the return of Jesus, what you believe or don't believe. And really, that is a plan of the enemy. The enemy wants to divide. The enemy wants to kill, destroy, steal even the peace that he has given us in his promise to return. Uh, Proverbs 18:17 says this, The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. So if you've ever watched those shows, those uh, law shows on TV, the first person gets up, the, the lawyer, he lays out the defense, and you're just like, there's no way they're going to lose. And then the cross-examination comes, and you're like, uh-oh. That's why we have juries. That's why we have court cases. That's why we have judges, because everyone is right in their own eyes. There's a right and a wrong, and yet we think on this particular topic that someone lays out a very well-articulated path, and you're like, that must be right. And then you hear a completely different truth, and you're like, clearly laid out, very articulate, and you're like, uh... And there's the labels, like... Uh, Pre-trib and mid-trib and post-trib and millennial, pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial. Let's just burn it all. It's like we have these labels and we think we have to pick one, but Scripture's very clear. Scripture says that he is coming back. Jesus is returning. Not only did Scripture say it, but the first century church, the disciples, the apostles that were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, they were clearly confident that he was coming back soon. That's what they all said. That was all their message. And so we're going to look today at Peter, particularly, uh, specifically Peter. We're going to see what he says because we know that he's coming back 
It's in the details that we all get a little confused. And so what you're not going to get today is a timeline or a how Jesus is coming back. What you're going to get today is truth that Jesus is coming back and it should affect the way we live because he is coming back. So the misunderstood part of scripture is that, or that people have in scripture specifically, we've been walking down this path for 12 weeks now and you're like, whoo, that's a long journey. There's so many mis- we could go on for another 50 weeks because there's so many things that are misunderstood and people stake their whole religious and philo- uh, theological viewpoint on a specific view and it could be just off. Well, scripture's clear that he's coming back. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus himself in Acts 1. It says he was with his disciples. They went up to the Mount of Olives. He's standing there, and then they started looking, and boom, he just ascends into heaven. And they're standing there looking up, saying, what in the world? And these two angels appear and say, hey, guys, what are you, what are you looking at? The same way that he went, he's coming back. Well, that's where the controversy is. That's where it's gotten a little crazy because even in the first century, people were like, well, I don't think Jesus really was physically here. I think he was a spirit. So they started talking about he didn't bodily resurrect. And, then, and that's why Jesus showed us his scars and he let uh, Thomas, he said, come and touch me. That's why he ate fish and bread. That's why he tried to show them and he actually physically was here. So there's always been an attack on Jesus' return, whether it causes discussions or head scratches or debates, fights, elevated blood pressure. It doesn't matter. For 2,000 years, people have been debating what the return of Jesus looks like. And in my lifetime, specifically in the last 100 years, I'm not 100 years old, but in my lifetime, there's this philosophical approach to the return of Jesus. So I got some questions for you. 9.30, they failed the test. So let's, 11 o'clock, let's see if we can make this happen, okay? So who here has questions or has thought different things about the return of Jesus? Okay, more hands. Okay, okay, good, 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 good. Um, How many people have read the Left Behind series? Okay, a uh, few, few people didn't want to admit that one. Okay, so that's fine. Um, who staked all their theological end times, apocalyptic language on the end times, especially when you saw the movies? Oof, they really got you. Kirk Cameron. Cameron. Okay, yeah. Okay, so here's what our society has done because there's people that are thinkers and there's people that are good writers. There's people that tell good stories. They've duped a whole generation to think that it's supposed to happen a specific way when it's hard, you're hard-pressed to find that in Scripture. You'd have to stretch really hard and wide to get that to all fit in the narrative. Now, we're not going to talk about it specifically today because, truthfully, what you believe about Jesus' return isn't as as important as, is do you believe Jesus is going to return? Is he a resurrected Savior that's going to come back for his church? That's what Scripture teaches. It teaches that he's coming back. So all these labels that you can find are not in the Bible, but they do serve as a distraction for the unity in the church. They separate us instead of unify us. They distract us from the fact that he's coming back. They distract us from the having peace among one another as followers of Jesus. And the truth that Jesus will return has been expected and anticipated from the day he rose from the grave. The truth is you read these disciples' writings and they anticipated him to come back in their lifetime. The first church in the few, first few centuries anticipated Jesus to come back in the church's existence. And here 2,000 years later, there's something in the DNA of a follower of Jesus that we think that he's coming back in our lifetime because he said he's coming back soon. And we believe him to be true. We will see this today in the writings and why we think this way. When I was growing up, there was all this talk about the end times. And I was worried about getting left behind. There was songs, and I could sing it for you if you want me to, but I'm not going to. Sing it. (laughs) Quiet in the back. (laughs) 
But there was this thought when I was a teenager, about 17 years old, sitting around talking to my friends, talking about the return of Jesus, and I was like, you know what? I want him to come back, but can he just wait till I get married and get on my honeymoon? Then he can come back. It's going to take you a minute to get that. Some of you guys are like, oh. It's like, I want him to come. I'm excited, but not quite yet. Now that we're married, all of us are saying, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. <laughs> oh, that's so bad, isn't it? Christy, not us. That's an except, we're an exception to that rule. Okay. Whoops. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't read that really well in my notes. Sorry. As I've matured and as, as the church has grown up and matured a little bit in this process, there's a different thought, which is we see God as this judgmental condemnation God and we see the meme, God sitting in the front seat of the driver's seat and saying, don't make me come back there. And that's how all of us have looked at either the, re the return of Jesus either as, don't come yet because I got a lot of living to do, or don't make me come back there. And both of these viewpoints have a tension because Jesus is coming back. I mean, for some reason, the return of Jesus brings anxiety and confusion and questions and fear. But Jesus left and he had that promise. He says, hey guys, I'm coming back. I'm going to set it right. The disciples in particular, uh, we see the writings of Paul, we see the writings of Peter, we see the Gospels. They speak of this often, and they remind the reader and the audience and the church that Jesus is coming back. Now, I imagine that some of it was used as a weapon to keep the church in line, but mostly it was this anticipation for the return of Jesus to set things in order. And so why would we discuss the return of Jesus around Easter? Today being Palm Sunday, where historically we see in Scripture Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, low and humble, and the crowds were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then a few days later, he was crucified. Why would we talk about his return? Well, it's because we get excited about the resurrection, but I think the motivation to get excited about the resurrection is because Jesus himself will come again for us. Jesus himself in scripture promises that he will come and he will wipe away every tear, that he will come and he will bring justice. That's why we are excited about his return. We're going to start with Peter. We're going to be in the book of 2 Peter. This is chapter 1 and chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. If you're in the Bible event on the app, there was a little confusion in the first service. We got it straightened out. If you find the one that says Jesus' return, part 1, we're going to be there today. And it talks, it's there and it's in 2 Peter chapter 1, then we're going to go to chapter 3. We're going to start there in verse 12. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. The first part of the book is really just some introductory, kind of a welcome type thing, like all the authors did in a letter. And then he gets to verse 12. He goes, Therefore, I, always, I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. And it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. So I will work hard to make sure that you always remember these things after I am gone. So he says, it's okay for me to remind you. It's okay for me to bring these things up over and over again. We're going to see what he wants to remind us about in a second. But I think in the beginning, what we need to see in, in, in him setting this up, he's telling us what we already know. Life is short. Life goes by quick. We can't, are not counted on for tomorrow. Things happen. There's a lot of people that say you, you're born, you live, you pay taxes, and you die. That seems what it's like. We're about to be in, ta we're in tax season right now. That seems to be life. It's over quickly with lots of problems. Life is short. 
Peter said that he was told by Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was about to be taken away from this world. He's about to lose his life. If you look at the, the historical account of Peter, Peter was crucified, and he chose to be crucified upside down because he didn't find himself worthy to be crucified like the Savior on a cross. And so the history tells us that Peter, in all humility, was crucified upside down. The idea is that this life is temporary. If you read other translations, they say tent or tabernacle. We are living in a temporary home. We're living in something that's fading away. And the older we get, the more we realize that this tabernacle is fading away. Life is short. And if we look at Peter, he's one of the spiritual fathers of the church. Jesus actually told him, he goes, I will build my church on the statement that you are the son of the living God, Jesus. And so Peter had the keys, the church has the keys to the kingdom of God. It's important that we stand firm, and Peter's reminding us about this over and over again, and specifically in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 16. It says, For we are not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly beloved or loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's describing an experience that he, Peter, and John had. Uh, sorry, Peter, James, and John, they had an experience where Jesus took them aside and they went up on a mountain. And right there before their very eyes, Jesus was transformed. He actually gave them a glimpse of his eternal glory on the mountain. Moses and Elijah show up with him, and Peter's stunned, and he goes, should we make some tents? He was all kind of in his own mind, but he saw Jesus, and then out of the cloud, out of the sky, came this voice. This is my dearly loved son in whom I'm well pleased. He experienced this thing that Scripture calls the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were there, and they saw a glimpse of the future, a glimpse of his glory. They saw the finally resurrected King Jesus in all splendor. And this is the Peter that was there when Jesus revealed himself. This is Peter that was there when Jesus performed the miracles and made a lame man uh, walk and a blind man see and the deaf hear. He was the, the one that he saw Jesus call Lazarus out from the dead. This Peter saw those miracles. He actually was there when Jesus calmed the storms and when Jesus fed 5,000 people and then shortly after walked on the water and called Peter, Peter out to the water. Peter, This is the Peter that was there and he's telling the reader, in all that I saw it and yet I denied the very Jesus and he still told me to feed his sheep. This is the same Peter and all the doubts and all the downfall and all the question that Jesus says, do you still love me? Peter keeps reminding us that Jesus is coming again. On that mountain, Peter got a clear view of the eternal Jesus, and he was convinced. He saw that majestic splendor with his own eyes, and he heard the voice of God. Verse 19, that experience changed him. It says right here, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. So they had scripture. They were reading the, what we call the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. They were reading that, and it says right here, the, the confidence is there that the Savior is going to come and set things right. It says you must pay co close attention to what they wrote. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day 
dawns. The Christ of the morning star shines in your heart. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. This experience on the mountain deepened his faith in spite of his wavering over the next few years. It deepened his faith with him. He experienced and pointed him to the truth of God's word. And here's, here's my question just right for this section is when we have had a spiritual experience, if we've had this mountaintop experience where the spirit of God has actually reached down and changed the course of our lives, have we taken time to write it down? Have we taken time to actually consider what he's done? Because let me tell you this, shortly after those kind of experiences, we'll even deny Jesus like Peter. And we need to look back and say, okay, this is what God did in my life before. He can do it again. We need to write it down. We need to consider because it should give a foundation for our faith. We need to remember the promises that God has made in Scripture from the first pages all the way to the end. And many of us get ourselves in situations where we just forget that Jesus is coming again. We're longing for the day. In your Bibles, the printed version, it's capitalized because this is the day that's predetermined by the Father that he's going to come again. The rescuer is going to come. We're longing for the day when everything is put at peace. We're longing for the day when God will bring justice and order and Jesus gives hope for that day because all of Scripture shines a light and points right to Jesus. Scripture was given by the Holy Spirit. Here, here's the bottom line when we see this. Peter fully expected and looked forward to the day when Jesus was going to come back. And when he says that no prophet was given a secret and of their own measure prophecy, he was saying the Spirit of God told them this was going to happen, and they wrote it down. They didn't come up with this own divine revelation. They didn't come up with their own philosophy of how to live. They didn't come up with their seven steps to do right. They actually got it from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit inspired them to write the words of the prophet down. And it always points back to the truth that Jesus is coming again. If you read the prophets of old, there's always this tension that a Savior is coming, and they're trying to set it up for the Savior to come, and then they're always let down. Every prof prophetical book ends with, ah, something's not quite right yet. And then out of the silence, Jesus comes the first time. And after he beat and defeated death, hell, and the grave, he's promised to come again. And that's what we put our hope in. It wasn't his own good doing. The prophet's own doing it was God's. We're going to skip over to chapter 3. Take time to read chapter 2, but chapter 2 is about false prophecy. So now we're going to go to chapter 3, where Peter, there in verse 1, says, This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through the apostles. Here's what I want to pause here for a second and think. Scripture was meant to refresh our thinking and renew our memory of things that we should be about. Because all of us have like this short memory, like short-sightedness, and we get along in the busyness of life, and we forget, oh, I, I need to go back and I need to be refreshed. When I get into Scripture, the, we call our church family to be in Scripture every day, and a lot of people just kind of do a checklist, and they just kind of check it off the list. Oh, I did it, and they blindly read through Scripture. But here what Peter is trying to encourage the reader 
to slow down and let the Spirit guide you to the Spirit of truth that he's trying to reveal in Scripture. Because if I slow down and I allow the Spirit to guide me as I approach Scripture, I'm going to approach Scripture in such a way expecting the Spirit of God to reveal truth to me. Because that's what Scripture is. It's not just a document for you to read and then go on about your day. So every Sunday as a pastor, my goal is not to tell you what to think. My advice is to tell you to get into the Word of God and let the Spirit guide your life. Because that will last far beyond my living. It's the Word of God to stimulate wholesome thinking and living. This is a holistic approach to Scripture because a lot of people like to cherry-pick parts of Scripture. And yet, Peter is saying, no, it reminds us and points us to the prophets and what they said to stimulate wholesome thinking and refresh our memory. Verse 3, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? For before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Ever since the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, we've been living in the last days. Scripture says that this is the age that is the last age. There's no age past this one on the earth. And so since Jesus rose, Scripture tells us that this is the age that's the last days. And so when we read last days, a lot of us minimize this and say, well, my life is the last days. Yes, but so were your grandparents and great-grandparents and so on before and all since Jesus' ascension has been the last days. Peter was writing in the first century, and he was living in the last days. We see why he thought that way here in a minute. We're going to see that he references time the way God sees it. Morality has never improved. Our own desires have become the most important thing. There's a common theme today, which is, I'm going to live my truth, and you do you, and I'll do me. This is the common philosophy of our day, and this has been happening since the first century and before that. Nothing has changed in the way humanity decides how to sin. Read the book of Judges, and you'll see that every man and woman did as they saw fit. Everyone lived their own truth. So here's the trap of the enemy. For us to say nothing has changed since the beginning of time. Not only does that eliminate the work of God and the miracles that God has performed, but it also eliminates the coming of Jesus and the, the defeat of death, the enemy. Verse 5. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth from out of the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They're being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Peter reminds the reader that things have changed since creation, since the beginning of time. Things are different. The world was created, the land appeared out of the water, and he used that water to flood the earth as a first line of judgment. And it's interesting that you keep reading in the, the fire, the idea of a consuming fire is in Peter's writings because God is an all-consuming fire. Now, before we read the next part, here's what most, uh, that's generalization, a lot of. Christians. They read scripture with the filter of a judgmental, fire-hungry, condemnation God, and that's their God. They hold that God up with a banner. They wear it as a badge, and they look at people with judgment. They say, just wait. Just wait till my dad comes down. 
He's going to take you out. So that's one view of God, and yet it's an incorrect view of God from the beginning to the end. This is the coming judgment of God, yes. But here's the issue. It misses the entire narrative of Scripture. From the first chapter and verse all the way to the end is that God is love. He's not willing that anyone should perish. He wants all to be a part of his family. Verse 8. But you not, must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So you can hold on to this God of vengeance and judgment and fire and condemnation, or you can see the overall narrative where God is not being slow, he's just being patient. You know, it's only been two days. According to what Peter said, it's only been two days since Jesus ascended. You're like, huh? Two days ago was Friday. Yes. In God's mind, a thousand years or a day is the same thing. And so could he come back in 12 hours? 500 years? Oh, please no. Could he come back in a, another day, another thousand years? It's really irrelevant. The time is what Peter's saying is irrelevant. It's because he is not being slow. He's actually being patient. He wants more people to come to him. He wants more people to find and follow him. He wants more people to seek him while he can be found. He is not done yet with our world, no matter how bad it seems. He's giving us more time to get it right. He's giving us more time to reconcile with one another. He's giving us more time to repent. He's giving us more time to restore relationships. He's giving us more time to heal. He's not being slow. He's being patient. When I tell Max and... Lily, not so much. She's grown out of this. But when I tell Max, hey, go clean your room, i got five minutes. I'm setting a timer. Now, you parents, you probably have done this as well. How many of you go in at five minutes? Not me. Five minutes just reminds me that I told them to do that. <laughs> Max, I'm coming in two minutes. you got two minutes. And then I'll make some noise like I'm coming that way, you know. Why, why am I doing that? Because I know I'm going to go in five minutes. It's still going to be a mess. I'm giving them a little time, and I'm human. I'm not looking to, I don't want to condemn him, and I don't want to punish him. I know he's in there playing. I know he's in there building Legos and playing with cars. I know that. So I'm giving him time. I'm being patient. But eventually I'm going to show up. Like eventually I'm going to come in. A lot of us treat God like the Amazon package we ordered. We know it's coming. We see it tracked but we haven't told our, told our spouse yet that we bought it. <laughs> Maybe I can intercept the Amazon guy. A lot of us treat God that way. We know he's coming. We know it's about to arrive, and yet we ignore it, and we don't get ready for it. We don't have the conversations we're supposed to have before it's delivered. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Jesus is coming back unexpectedly. This is not something to be surprised about. It's something simply that's going to happen when we least expect it. There's a tension between please come soon, Jesus, and not yet. Give me five more minutes. Do you feel that tension? 
Like, I'm still not ready, and yet I want you to come. Verse 11, since everything around you is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth, he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. You notice what's not in that passage? Yes, this world will be made new, but it doesn't mention judgment on the people. It's talking about the system of the world. What's, what we see is going to be melted away. Jesus is coming back. We can be ready for it with anticipation. It says right there, looking forward and hurrying it along. That's an interesting thought because he's saying that you and I get to participate in this thing called the church to help the process of the world being ready for Jesus to come back. No one has to be surprised by his return. We don't bury our head in the sand. We actually lift our heads up and speak of, Jesus, of Jesus' return and get excited about it. This gets confusing to me because we can't force God's hand. He's the one that knows the day. And yet it says here we can live like we believe that he's coming and actually help and assist in his coming to be peaceful. How, how does this happen? It happens by me submitting to the king. It helps by me submitting to Jesus and letting him help my life be holy and godly, to be separate, to be different. We can start by living godly lives. How does this happen? Well, I need to expect him to be coming back and live today like he's coming back today. That changes things. I told uh, my brother, I said, all you have to do is invite people over to your house once a week and your house will always be clean. All you got to do is be ready. And if you're constantly ready, you'll never be caught by surprise. Don't come to my house today, by the way. <laughs> Verse 14. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. This peace is like the absence of chaos, like this harmony, pure and blameless. This is hard. I don't know if that can be said of us. We want to be found doing right. We want to be found with our family in order. We want to be found living in etern with eternity in mind. So Jesus is going to come back when the time is right. He's the one that knows, and I can participate, and as my church family participate, as we come in alignment with one another, in peace with one another. Verse 15, and remember, our Lord's patient gives people time to be saved. Here we go. And this is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. With the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all his letters, some of his commands are hard to understand. <laughs> Have you ever read Paul's stuff, and you're like, woof, don't know what you're saying there, but here we go. It says, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different. Still happens today. Just as they do with their other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destru destruction. Okay. So I can take Scripture at face value without twisting it to say something else. And I can live at peace with my church family and those outside the church so they're attracted to Jesus' return and not with fear. We're going to see some of Paul's writings next week, but a lot of what's been twisted is to control and manipulate people into categories. Well, Jesus said, I've come to give you freedom. Those that are uh, burdened and carry heavy burdens, come to me, I'll give you rest. That's the rest of that religious problem that a lot of us carry. Verse 17, you already know these things, dear friends. So be on guard, then you will not be carried away by the errors, the errors this wicked people, and lose your own secure footing. 
Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. Jesus is coming back. We can be ready. It's not something to be fear. It's not something to be scared of, but it's something that we can definitely prepare for. Why is he delaying when some people think he's delaying? Why? Because he's just being patient. He's like, don't make me come down there. It's not quite ready yet. And we can all participate in the alignment. My, my question is, are you excited about him coming back? Man, I am, but not yet. There's more people in our community that don't know Jesus. Easter's coming. Our community is dark, needs the hope of Jesus. Just give us five more minutes. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, as we think about your return, we know that you've already defeated death, hell, and the grave. We know that you've set in motion the mystery of the redemption of mankind. We know that you're coming. It's fulfilled and promised and delivered. And yet we still are in a place where we're looking forward to it. There's still many of our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers and people that aren't ready yet. And I know for generations, God, in your mercy, you've held it off. And I think about what's happening in our church and I think about what's happening this week as we celebrate, as the awareness of Jesus has risen and the awareness that Jesus gives a different path to life. Jesus, I pray that this morning we would shift our view of the wrath-filled and vengeful God to the God of love and patience, mercy and grace, that you're just calling us to yourself, that Jesus is who he says he is. He came and did what he said he did, and right now, he's just waiting. He's giving more time. I pray this morning, God, you would draw people to yourself. Your spirit would work in our hearts and for us to say yes to you. That you'd fill our lives with the desire of, of right thinking, wholesome thinking, and godly living. That it would be a testimony to those people around us, not in condemnation, but in love and acceptance. Jesus, we love you. You, you have fought the battle. You've already won. And now we're picking up arms, spiritually, and we're in a battle that you've already won. You're the king. God, as we worship you, I pray that you would be pleased and you'd also draw us closer to you. It's in your name we pray.